Today's part two, and the hitting of today is my cup overflows. Now, Psalm 23 can and should be read with two different set of eyes. The first way to read the psalm, as we discussed last week, is to read it with a set of eyes, as seeing it and viewing it as a messianic psalm, a prophetic psalm. Jesus being prophesied a thousand years before he was even born. The first way to read the psalm is to view Psalm 23 as a continuation of Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, we read and we hear Christ's voice echoed into history through the pen of the shepherd David. As we hear the voice of Christ in Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A thousand years before Jesus hung upon the cross and actually fulfilled that prophecy by, by proclaiming, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Psalm 22, we hear Jesus saying, and I quote, They pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before we saw that prophecy being fulfilled as they pierced his hands and his feet. In Psalm 22, we hear him say, They divided my clothes amongst them. As a thousand years later, we see them dividing his clothes amongst themselves. In Psalm 22, we see, we hear him say, They cast lots for my garment as we look down the corridors of time and see them cast lots for his garment. We then hear in Psalm 23, as we exit Psalm 22, that very same voice declaring, Christ's voice declaring, the care of His Father with the words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It is within this context, within this picture of, of Him having His hands pierced and His feet pierced, Him crying out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Surrounded by wild men, angry, an angry mob, Casting lots for his garments. It's in the setting that he also now proclaims, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters and he restores me from the dead. Even though I go through a valley of shadow of death, he's always with me. He never leaves me. It is then that this psalm comes to us. Because when the psalm was written, they didn't write the psalms, or David didn't write the psalms with chapters and verses. It is a continuing thought. That's the first way of reading this psalm. The second way of reading this psalm, which is important, is to read it with a view as a, as a David writing this about himself. Hearing David declaring the care, the protection the provision of his shepherd, the Lord. So let's turn to Psalm 23 and let's read through it with both that under, those understandings, the eyes of viewing it as Jesus being prophesied and Jesus now responding to the prophecy a thousand years before he hung on the cross and also David as he responds to the Lord, his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. In the middle of all of that, he declares, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And then he says this, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That line right there, that statement right there can be very accurately translated and I will return to live in God's house forever. 
I will return to God's house and live there forever. As Jesus returned to be with the Father, and as David hears his heart cries out for the same. Now, of all the 150 Psalms that we have in the Bible, there are no other Psalm more quoted, more recited, more often memorized, more often written in cards, more often read at funerals, inscribed on tombstones than Psalm 23. No other psalm gets that place. It is the most famous Old Testament passage. Augustine, in times past, called it the martyr's hymn because so many Christians martyred, recited that in the process of being martyred and burning at the stake. Abraham Lincoln often quoted this same psalm during the Civil War. And then, not so long ago, we heard President George W. Bush read this psalm to the entire nation right after 9-11. For 3,000 years, which is how old the psalm is, Psalm 23 has brought comfort to millions upon millions of people because it can be understood by a child while at the same time it, it would take a theologian multiple volumes to write and exegete all the spiritual truths and depths of the psalm. Now in this psalm, the author reaches the highest level of life. There is no other higher place to go than this level that he reaches when he declares, My cup runneth over. Which degree in life or which place in life can you go from there? There is no higher place to go when your capacity is so completely saturated and so full that everything that you are receiving now starts overflowing from the life that you have. You might ask the question, well, what does a cup represent? A cup represents a person's life. Jesus said, let this cup, let this let this experience, this opportunity of me giving my all pass by me. Let this cup pass by me. Jesus said, I was poured out like a drink. A person's cup represents a person's life. And here he says, my cup overflows. What David is saying is that I don't just have enough. I have more than enough. I don't just have joy but exceeding joy. He's saying, I'm not just simply favored by God, but I have received an extravagant, extravagant degree of favor. Of everything that God blesses humans with, I have more than what I can contain. For you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Every one of them. There isn't a spiritual blessing in heavenly places that you have not received in Christ. And these blessings were pouring onto David to the point where he goes, I am full. My cup overflows to the point where others can come and receive from this overflowing cup. Where others can drink from and others can be blessed by and others can find shelter from or shelter with. You might say, Jacques, why are you talking about this now? Well, as a nation, as you know, in this one year, we may just have experienced more hardships, insecurity, uncertainty than we have in multiple past years gone by combined. It's been a very, very uncertain time for a very large amount of people. So the question is, how can we, like David, please stop that. How can we, like David, in the midst of 2020's hardships, declare the exact same statement, my cup overflows. How can we say that? How is it possible considering everything that we are currently going through? So that's my goal today. My goal today is to help us all understand that it is possible to declare that, it's possible to experience that, it is God's will for you in Christ that you too may say, my cup overfloweth. 
in all truthfulness. But how do we get there when this is the life we've been dealt? This is the hand we've been dealt. This is the life we've been given. In order to get there, we have to keep drilling. And in order to drill, the first question I have to answer is, when did David make this declaration? Why did David make this declaration? My cup overflows. So, historically speaking, we aren't sure as to when David said this. However, I want to outline some things for you. Because this statement could not have been made because of David's temporal circumstances. Since there doesn't seem to be a time in David's life where circumstances justified him making this kind of truthful statement, my cup overflows. You see, as a young boy, David was a shepherd watching his father's sheep. See, young shepherds at the time did not have it easy. As a matter of fact, they had a very hard life. We learn in children's church about little David, and we think that he had a blast. I mean, he was out in the fields, you know, he was, <laughs> he was watching sheep, and he was singing, playing harp, and writing poems, and what a wonderful life this kid must have had. When in fact, that's not the truth. The opposite is true. They had very, very hard lives as young boys, all by themselves, out in the field, not with horses, no, with sheep out in the field all by themselves for extended period of times, extended period of time. Not only were they oftentimes very lonely, but that wasn't a very lucrative thing to do. There wasn't much resources. There wasn't much money. They were always poor. Apart from spending days on end by themselves, lonely and poor, with little to no resources, there were also many dangers and hardships that they had to face in the field protecting the sheep. And if that wasn't enough for little David, David's brothers had ill will toward him and constantly belittled him, bullied him. He was often overlooked by everybody. As a matter of fact, when Nathan the prophet came to, to anoint the next king of Israel, everybody was called together. Well, David is always overlooked. He's left in the field because there was no possible way that the prophet would even be looking for somebody like a David in the field. David wasn't even considered as an option. Instead, he was passed over. He was snubbed by everybody except God. He wasn't raised in luxury. He wasn't raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. He wasn't privileged in that way at all. He had no comfort. He had no convenience. He had no opportunity, except for working for his father in the field. He had a hard and tough childhood. And if he wrote Psalm 23 at this time in his life, it certainly was not because of his circumstances that he was looking at. In order for him to say, my cup overflows, he had to have looked at something other than his circumstances. He had to have looked at some deeply spiritual satisfying experience that he had with God in order to allow him to declare those words truthfully, my cup overflows as he sits alone, poor with sheep in a field where it's dangerous. Overlooked and despised by everybody, including his own. How could he have said my cup overflows at that point in time if he wasn't looking at something other than his circumstances? After that season in his life, he transitioned to the next season, which is where he started serving King Saul in the palace, married to the king's daughter. However, that may seem glamorous, Yet, that position was a very dangerous one to have, especially for David. Because apart from the fact that this Saul that he was serving was growing increasingly crazy, mad, and insane, this king did so because of David. Because you've got to realize now, this king knew that this young man, 
in his palace, who is a warrior revered by many now, because he's already killed Goliath. He's now married to this king's daughter. This king knows that he was anointed by Saul, uh, by, Sam, uh, by Nathan, the prophet, to be the next king, which means he's going to be taking the throne from me. Samuel. Thank you. So Saul knew that Samuel had anointed this young boy to take his place, and so he became jealous. And in his jealousy, he created a tremendously toxic environment for somebody like David to work in and to live in. Not only did he create this horribly toxic environment, but also he hated David to the point where he wanted to kill him on many occasions. So I'm just telling you that because if David at that time had penned the words, my cup overflows, it wasn't because of his circumstances. He had to have looked at something other than his circumstances in order to write, my cup overflows. He had to have been filled a different way than by the life he was handed. And oftentimes, we refuse to say that. We cannot say that from our hearts truthfully because my circumstances don't allow me to. When this was not true for David. During the next season of David's life, this is after the king attempted to murder him too many times. David fled, and David is now in exile, running from the king and his armies. As they were hunting down David, David had to run and live in a desert, in a mountain, in a cave, hiding from these armies. Surely it could not have been his circumstances at that time that made him pin my cup overflows. It had to have been because of a different reason. After he's 14 years in exile, running from David and his armies, excuse me, running from Saul and Saul's armies, David then transitioned from being hunted by King Saul to being crowned the king of Israel. Surely this was the moment where he pinned, my cup runneth over. However, when we look at history, we see that that was not his life. David marched from battle to battle, from war to war. And even if you won the battle and you had victory in that war, there wasn't one time they celebrated where they didn't also weep because of the amount of men it cost them to actually win that battle. As king, the position of king is very unpleasant because of the crushing degrees of stress and the never-ending threats that he has to face from the outside and from the inside at all times. When you read the story of how King David had to rule in the times in which he ruled. Those were difficult times to be king. It could not have been the circumstances in which he lived that caused him to declare, my cup overflows. It had to have been something else that made him realize his cup overflows. After that season of his life, he enters the last season of his life where it's his latter days. This is after his sin with Bathsheba. At this time in his life, the end of his life, it was like all of his troubles doubled down on him. Crushed him. Consider how the Bible speaks of how devastated he was with sackcloth and ashes after the boy, the baby boy had to die, the one that he had with Bathsheba. It was because of him. I can only imagine David going through so much turmoil in his life, so many hardships, trials, and testings. I can only imagine how many times David had to sit down and think, there's so much blood on my hands. And I wonder if he was connecting everything that he did to the hardships he was facing, like we do. When his little baby boy dies, of course it was 
he's doing. How do you deal with that? And here he is, crushed and destroyed because of what was weighing on him. But at the same time, it wasn't just the nation's stress that was resting on him, but his family, his grown children, especially Absalom, his son, who was a defiant rebel. <clears throat> Consider how much that had to weigh on him. Imagine his daughter Tamar, a beautiful, beautiful daughter of his, who then ends up being raped by his son, Amnon. After which Absalom grew resentful and hateful toward Amnon for having raped his sister. And the drama continues as Absalom then goes ahead and kills Amnon. How, how could David at this point in his life even pen the words, my cup overflows. He must have been absolutely crushed and just devastated, considering even the fact that much of it was his doing. Surely that statement was not recorded in these circumstances. That statement wasn't recorded because of those circumstances. That statement, my cup overfloweth, had to be penned in all truthfulness because of something else. There was something else that caused his cup to be overflowing. So we simply cannot take the statement, my cup overflow, and say, well, this is a declaration of a man with easy circumstances. That's not why he said it, because his circumstances weren't easy. We could never have said, if my life was as simple, if my life was as easy, if my life was as convenient, if my life was as prosperous, if my life was as safe as King David's, then I too would have been able to say my cup overfloweth. But no, on the contrary, after taking a closer look at David's life, the question is, how could it possibly even make sense that he made that statement? Unless there was a different reason as to why his cup was overflowing. Unless to the fact that there was a, a, different, a different scenario that he was looking at that caused his cup to be filled and then overflowing. So in order to find out what it is that makes our cup overflow, let's first outline the five cups that don't ever overflow. The five cups that are always dry that men attempt to drink from and live by. By establishing what makes a cup never overflow, it'll help us to establish the very thing that actually does make it overflow. You see, many cups will never overflow simply because people go to the wrong source. They go to the wrong tap to fill it with. They go to the wrong faucet. They go to the wrong river to fill their cup with. They go to the wrong fountain to fill their cup with. Any cup looking to be filled by the world will always remain empty, disappointing, leaving the holder of that cup disillusioned with life itself. The first cup out of the five I would like to outline is that some attempt to fill their cup with money. The truth is every man who attempts to fill his cup with money will only have enough when he has a little bit more, his cup will always remain empty until he has a little bit more. You see, unless the chief shepherd, Jesus, leads a man, his cup will never overflow. His heart will never overflow, no matter how full his wallet is. The second cup that always runs dry is that some attempt to fill their cup with pleasure. You see, the problem with this source, this tap, this faucet, this river, this fountain, is that appetite grows. Your appetite for something is either always growing or starving. But if a person attempts to fill their cup with pleasure, what they have to realize is that that passion, that lust, will never be satisfied. It always needs another level. It always needs something a little further out, something a little bit more than used to have. 
This is why when you look at Netflix today and you see what they're putting out in the movie called Cuties, a great answer to that is why are you shocked, LGBT? What made you think that you can decide to dis you can decide to create your own standard of morality that you choose when something now becomes wrong? If you don't allow God to decide when something is wrong, well, then you are in free fall. Of course it needed to go there, and it's going to go everywhere else too, because you are not the one that decides where to draw the lines between right and wrong. When we decided, and those who vote for those kind of things, you are the ones that remove the boundaries that God has set, and He said you cannot and may not and will not pass this line. So of course... There's no longer a standard. Men have now been given the freedom to choose what they want the standard to be and not knowing that if your cup is, you're trying to fill your cup with pleasure, passion and lust are never satisfied. They have to go to the next level the next time because what they've been used to and if that will never be satisfying. So coming to the source will only demand a greater degree of perversion constantly, and it'll never be enough. Never be enough. Start normalizing the first step over the line. We as a church and we as Christians, we need to hold those people who have microphones to, their, to task put their feet to the fire. If they cannot say, this is a sin, God says no, even if it costs me my ministry, if they cannot say it, tune them out. Just tune them out. They're wolves. Look at where we are. Because nobody can say what the Bible says. You know why not? Because of guile. Do you know what guile is? Guile is what the guy had. Well, let me say it the other way around. There was a man by the name Nathaniel. Philip runs to Nathaniel and he says to Nathaniel, Hey, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. You know what Nathaniel's response is? He goes, Where did you find him? Philip says, He's from Nazareth. Nathaniel goes, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Couldn't be the Messiah. Those people, those people cannot produce anything good. It's almost like saying to somebody, we found, we found the next Billy Graham. Where's he from? Oh, he was born and raised in Vegas. You see, it's almost like, no, no, a Billy Graham cannot be born and raised in Vegas. <clears throat> but it was more so like that then when Nathaniel goes, nope, he's not the Messiah. I know the Nazarenes, those who come from Nazareth. Well, it, then Philip says, well, hey, come with me. I want to I go introduce you to him. Philip takes Nathaniel to Jesus. He walks to Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, you are Nathaniel. And within you, there is no guile. The Israelites were known for their guile. Esau had guile. He murders his brother. Jacob had guile. He deceives his father in order to take the birthright from... from, from excuse me. Cain... Killed his brother Abel. Jacob lied to his father to take the birthright from Esau. Then Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, he has guile. He lies and deceives his own, his own son-in-law. Gives him the wrong wife. 
I mean, here comes Joseph. All of his brothers hate him. They sell him. They're all filled with guile. You might say, what is guile? It's exactly what Jesus said that man didn't have. Which was what? He was not politically correct <laughs> in any way. He said, nothing good comes out of there. He did not try and miss every single landmine and statement that he shouldn't say in order to gain approval from everybody else. He wasn't untruthful in his communication. He said what he believed, right? He said what he believed. Are you guys with me? He wasn't constantly lying in his communication, filtering everything through in order to make sure whatever comes out on the other side makes everybody love me and accept me. It's almost like every single Christian celebrity on Ellen DeGeneres or any of those shows, every one of them are just oozing guile, oozing guile, because there's a filter. They cannot say anything the Bible really says about all these issues. It stops. It can't come through. Why? Because everything that comes through... That filter is what will make everybody else love them, accept them, support them. That's guile. But Jesus looked at Nathan, looked at Nathan Nathaniel, and said, in, a man, in that man there is no guile. Our culture has wired us to never be truthful anymore. I mean, this is now... You know, saying the wrong thing has become a great evil, even if it is by mistake. Truthfulness has now become the least, um, least valuable virtue. The most important virtue is having the ability to only say the words that most approve of. That's guile. And here we are, here we are, the church so filled with guile, so filled with guile, only saying what everybody else will approve of, and there you have a church completely supporting a Hitler. How did that happen? Guile. They wouldn't speak the truth. They just agreed with the flow. And here we are today again. The church filled with guile. You can't but find a guy other than John MacArthur that can go on TV and not speak with guile. So here we are looking at Netflix and there's nothing we can do because all of our leaders support guile. They cannot speak the word confidently fearlessly, without compromise. So the question is, which cups are never filled? Number one is the cup that is attempted to be filled with money, mammon. Number two, the cup that is attempted to be filled with pleasure. The third cup is some who attempt to fill their cup with prominence and importance and fame. They want to be known as great and honorable. They long to be admired and remembered. And this is because of personal ambition. They have this need to shine. They have this need to be taken seriously at all times. It is their goal to leave their mark in this world. They want to be remembered. But when you look at the miserable end of just about every single shooting star in Hollywood... You cannot but thank God for protecting you from such emptiness. You know, it's an amazing thing to me how people to this day still attempt to get their children to, you know, go for testing and screen tests and everything in order to have them play in a movie. It's just amazing that parents are still doing that. I mean, how many times do you have to see that, that road there ends really bad? Oh, no, not this time. Not for me, <laughs> you know. But we cannot keep making our children think that they ought to be celebrities in any way. Humility is 
what we made up out of and called to shine throughout our lives. And I'm amazed at how today you look at those great men of the past. You see how somebody like John Calvin, who still speaks today in such a massive, loud voice, without ever planning to be that. I mean, do you know that when he passed away, the government gave him his wish, which was to not have a public funeral, but it had to be done in private and secret. Secondly, to have no tombstone, no grave, that anybody could recognize or know where he's at. He did not want to be remembered. He did not want to have a name. He said this because he knew that within every single man, including himself, there's this need to be remembered and this need to be elevated and this need to be celebrated and this need to be viewed as important. When in fact, that's what happened to a man who chose not to want, who didn't want that for himself. But somehow in our culture, many people attempt to fill their cup with this, this very evil, prominence, importance, fame, to be great and to be honorable, to shine, to make their mark in the world. Every child, every student is encouraged to do so as they leave school. How about having a goal to make God great? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be different. The fourth cup is that some never have their cups filled simply because the only one holding the cup has the disease of perpetual, perpetual discontent. The one holding this cup has a disease called perpetual discontent. You know, as the saying goes, to the discontent man, no chair is easy. It is as impossible to fill a discontented man's heart as it is to fill a cup that has no, no bottom. See, a contented man has enough no matter how little it may be, but a discontented man can never have enough no matter how much he has. It's the contentment of a man's heart that determines whether he has enough or not. The discontented individual is always scratching for something to disqualify you with. I don't know if you've been in some of those relationships. But to the discontented man, you know, whoever he's working with or whoever he's answering to, that person's personality is either too sharp or too soft. It's either too rough or too tempered. The man either has no backbone or he's a complete bully. One of the two. But to the discontented person, you will never be what you should be. They will always keep on scratching until they find something to disqualify you by. That's the discontented individual. I love Charles Spurgeon. I want to quote you or I want to read you one of his statements. He said this, I quote, I know men who, if they were in paradise, would find fault with the glades of Eden and would propose to turn the channels of its rivers and shift the positions of its trees. If the serpent were excluded... They would demand liberty for the serpent to enter and would grow indignant at his exclusion. They would criticize the music of angels, find fault with the cherubim, and grow weary of white robes and golden harps. Or as at last recourse, they would become angry with a place so completely blessed for not affording them a corner where they are free to be their spiteful self. For such unrestful minds... Charles Spurgeon says, a cup that overflows is an impossibility. For that person who's just always discontent with absolutely everything, your cup will remain empty. Enjoy. Number five, the last one, is that some people's cup will never run over because they are envious. They are envious. This is huge in our society today. It's become part and parcel of who we are. You see, they would have been satisfied with what they had, but unfortunately, they found somebody who had more. Now they're discontent. You see, they cannot bear seeing others experience what they cannot. It becomes a thorn in their flesh. 
Their only goal in life is to see those, who those people who have much to lose what they have in order to experience the misery of those who have less than they. That's their goal in life. There are many, many vices for the rich, right? Jesus warned the rich over and over and over again, watch out, watch out, watch out. Not, not because you're rich, but because of the deceptions that come to the rich. And here we see the one vice that comes predominantly to the poor, or at least to most of the poor, and that is this vice called envy. Envy. The chosen sin of those who see themselves as poor. You don't have to be poor. You have to see yourself as poor in order to be tempted by this very evil called envy. You see, it is a fantastic day when a person can repent from envy. It's a wonderful day. You know why? Because that's the first time that person is able to rejoice with those who rejoice. Even if they cannot rejoice for what they don't have, and they see others rejoice for what they do have, the one with no envy can at that point submit himself to the Scripture and says, now rejoice with those who rejoice. How do I know that I have repented from envy? Because I have had to repent from envy personally many a times. I have to constantly repent from envy. It is something you and I have to keep on working at, right? We have to repent from envy because envy didn't come to help you. Envy has come to destroy you. Envy has come to empty, empty your cup completely where there's nothing in this life that you can enjoy anymore. But you hate everything about the life that you have even though the whole entire world envies the life that you have. You hate it because you envy somebody else's life that you don't have. I mean, it is crazy how that sin blinds you, deceives you, empties your cup, makes you angry, resentful, hateful, and now gives you a goal. Instead of glorifying God with the life that you have, you attempt to destroy another man's life that God gave him. Envy is here to destroy us. How do I know that I have repented from envy? When I cannot rejoice, let me say this, how do I know I have not repented from envy? Is when I cannot rejoice with those who rejoice, but instead I resent seeing others rejoice, especially when they have more than I do. You see, unrepentant envy in my life is the cause that my cup will run dry forever until repentance come, becomes part of the equation. Unrepented envy will give you a, an increasingly emptied cup. So, we talked about the five cups that are always dry. The cup that attempts to be filled with money. The cup that attempts to be filled with pleasure. The cup that attempts to be filled with prominence, importance, and fame. The cup that's never filled is the cup that is held by the person who has a perpetual discontented heart. And finally, the cup that is held by the man who has envy in his heart. So I want, to, I want to end today with the question, well then, whose cup is filled and will run over, and how can mine be filled? Why does somebody's cup overflow? Well, I want to start just with some of my conclusions so that we can get the psychology of it behind us, because I want to move to what Psalm 23 tells us. But I've realized that every single spiritual virtue has a psychological outworking. Every single spiritual practice that you engage with has a psychological outworking, whether it be serving or giving or, or loving or caring. Every single spiritual practice, that, whether it is submitting to uh, one verse or another, every single spiritual practice has a psychological outworking. You see, there's nothing you can do in your body that's not going to affect your mind. Let me say it this way. I don't know about you, but have you ever seen somebody decide to become prodigal for a couple of years? They become prodigal for three years. They give themselves to alcohol. They give themselves to vices, and, and they go wild for three years. They come back. You look at the guy, and you go, what just happened? 
You look like you just aged 20 years. Have you seen that happen? Because you cannot give yourself to sin in the body without it also playing out in your mind and in your psyche. It affects how you think. It affects what you see and how you see things. It affects your life in every way. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, that sin is like in dough. <laughs> sin is like yeast, right? Is that what it is? Makes the bread rise? It's, it, go, it goes everywhere. It, it infiltrates absolutely every part of your life. And so every single spiritual virtue has this psychological outworking. And you and I have experienced this, that a focused person is a happy person. There's a certain joy and happiness that comes to a person that's not always distracted. We also see that a productive man, you might say a faithful and therefore fruitful man, is a man whose heart is filled. It's like when you've worked hard on a project for a long time, you've given yourself to it, and it's now over. You feel like there's a certain fulfillment. You worked hard all day long. You get to lay your head on the pillow, and there's a certain fulfillment that comes. As to the person who gives himself to nothing and does nothing and accomplishes nothing, he doesn't put his head on the pillow with the same amount of fulfillment. There's a certain dignity that comes with work. You see, a relationally satisfied man is also a content man. Contentment comes from knowing that you've disconnected yourself from the wrong people and you have connected yourself with the right people. There's a certain contentment that comes to you when, you've know, when you know you have worked at your marriage, you've worked at your child, children, you've worked at your relationships, you've worked at your family, and by God's grace, your family's intact. There's a certain fulfillment that comes there and a contentment that comes. A man whose wife respects him is a man who is strengthened beyond measure. There's an outworking to that virtue, respect. The joyful man is the man who has made decisions that are holy before God. You and I both have experienced that. You may have to make decisions that are difficult to make. But there's a joy in that difficult decision when you make it because you know this is the holy decision to make before God. When you make a decision that doesn't honor God because there might be great gain, it doesn't matter how much gain there is, you know how you have no joy. It's like the rich young ruler. Jesus says to him, take everything you have, sell it and give the money to the poor. And that man, the Bible says, walked away sad. Even though he gained everything that he, that he worked for and he kept it, he didn't give anything away. He didn't follow Jesus. He walked away sad because joy comes to the man who has made decisions that are holy before God, even if it costs him. You see, the humble man is the man most thankful among all men. When a person is humble, there's a gratitude that comes alive in their hearts. But when a person is filled with pride, somehow they're never thankful for anything. Have you ever noticed that? I always wondered when I was younger, my dad had this picture of James Dean laying on his motorbike with a cigarette, and it says rebel without a cause. <laughs> rebel, just angry. No cause. But let me tell you what that cause is. Pride. Because it's humility that makes a person grateful for even the little they have. Pride makes people rebels even though they have a lot. So the outworking of the virtue of humility is gratitude and thankfulness. I'll finish with this one, the man without guile. I'll finish my conclusion here. The man without guile is a confident man. I just see Nathaniel 
saying to Philip, nope, nope, he's not, this is not the Messiah. Certainly not the fact that he comes out of Nazareth, not going not to happen. Walks up to Jesus. Jesus says, in you there is no guile. He goes, Did, have we met before? <laughs> Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the tree. You see, a man with no guile is a man who does not have an agenda. He's not trying to filter everything he says in order to make sure only what everybody's going to approve of will come through the filter to the other side. That's the man with an agenda. That's who you see, the celebrity preachers and teachers and so forth on television stations. That's what you see is guile. They're working it. They're working to be loved by the world. It's called adultery because you are supposed to be Christ's bride. You're not supposed to be loved by and want to be loved by the world. So in this context of this psalm, in this context of Psalm 23, David utters, my cup overflows. The outworking in David's life was that he wasn't just happy, he was more than just happy. His heart wasn't just filled, it was more than filled, it was overflowing. He wasn't just content. He's more than just content with what he had in God. He was joyful, he was humble, he was confident. And you might say, well, how can my cup overflow like David's? You see, the Lord in reality becomes your shepherd. And when He does, in reality become your shepherd. That is when your cup overflows. Because that's what He said. He goes through Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am surrounded by enemies. They laugh at me. They scoff at me. They pierce my hands. They pierce my feet. They ripped my clothes. They divided amongst themselves. They cast their lots for my, for my garment. But, oh God, my shepherd, you are my shepherd who leads me. Therefore, I will not lack. You will never leave me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of all of these, my enemy. You restore me back to life. My cup overflows. In the midst of those circumstances, my cup overflows because I'm not looking at them who surround me. I am not looking at how they hate me. I am not looking at my circumstances. I look at you and my cup overflows. Why? Because you are my shepherd. That's why my cup overflows. And today, I'm telling you that your cup will overflow and can only overflow when he is your shepherd, and He is only your shepherd when you are His sheep. He says, my sheep know my voice. They follow, and a stranger's voice they will not follow. That's why I tell you when you hear those guys with guile, turn them off. For heaven's sakes, turn them off. If you are a sheep, the Bible, Jesus said clearly, my sheep hear my voice and a voice of a stranger, they will not follow. They will not follow that voice. For a time, until the Lord calls them, and they will leave. They will go to where the shepherd's voice is. You might say, Jacques, when is the Lord my shepherd? I think He is. <laughs> I don't know. Is He my shepherd? I don't know. I hope He is, okay? Because I want my cup to overflow. Well, Psalm 23 tells us, the Lord is, my, is your shepherd when you refuse to graze with those in the world. You refuse to graze with those in the world. Instead, you allow your shepherd to lead you to His chosen green pastures for you. You allow your shepherd to lead you to His green pastures for you. Here it is. This is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And many people go like, yeah, I need more psychology. This is just, I don't know. I need, let's... I need another, I need a counselor, I need psychology, I need, let's go to a philosophy course. Now, I'm not saying philosophy, I'm not saying that means nothing, I'm saying that is not the green pastures he's led you to. You cannot graze off of that and have your cup overflow. You cannot graze off of that and think that he is your shepherd. So, 
when the word is sufficient for you, when this is where you go to eat, when this is what satisfies you, let me say it this way, when you are satisfied by this alone, he is your shepherd. When you don't require more, or you don't require something else, or you don't require another vision, or you don't require a more exciting experience than the one I have, when the word is sufficient for by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scriptures alone, that is the one who is a sheep led by the shepherd, allowing that shepherd to lead them to his chosen green pastures for them. When is the Lord your shepherd? Well, he is your shepherd when he guides you in paths of righteousness and you wholeheartedly follow not for your own gains or your own comforts, but for His name's sake. When you follow Christ for God's glory. If you, like Calvin, can say, I want to die faceless, nameless. I don't want to have a tomb. <clears throat> now, don't tell me, Jacques says, I'm not supposed to have a tomb. No, you can have a tomb, all right? I'm saying... When that green monster doesn't drive your life, where you are urgent to make your mark and be remembered, and I'll be a Christian because all these promises that God gives is going to help me in my cause to elevate me. If that is a person's understanding, he's not your shepherd. You are your shepherd, and you're just using him, right? So, he is my shepherd. He is your shepherd when you allow him. To, to, to lead you in paths of righteousness, when you, uh, when, when you allow Him to lead you in these paths for His glory and not for your own. You know that the Lord is your shepherd when you fear no evil. Why? Because you know that He's with you. Because you have the ability to trust that He is with you. Let me say it that way. It's when you do not fear. When you are in fear, you are not allowing Christ, well, you're not trusting that He's leading you. You're trusting that the devil has a plan, and this might end really bad. But when you trust God, you don't fear that. You don't fear that. So in other words, the Lord is your shepherd when you fear no evil because you are able to trust that He is with you. I will fear no evil for you. You are with me. For you know that the Lord is your shepherd when His rod and His staff does not offend you. Oh, this is huge. You know that He is your shepherd when His rod and His staff does not offend you, but instead they comfort you. That means you are not offended when God disciplines you, but instead you find comfort when He corrects you. Thank you, God, for correcting us. It is such a comfort to know you're correcting us. This is a sign that you love us. This is a sign that we are yours. You see, what happened and what has happened in the last 20, 30 years is that instead of what the church was known for, even in the early years, you can go and study church history, you'll see that in the Bible and in the early church, church discipline was actually a big deal, right? Church discipline was a big deal. You can't do that anymore today. Why? Because... Things like, let's say, um, many things, but let's say, for instance, easy believerism. Easy believism. Um, well, I believe, therefore I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> what about um, seeker-sensitive? See how this plays out. So, now, what does the seeker-sensitive movement do? Which is almost dead by now, but it was huge in the last 20 years, and it's brought us to where we're at. The seeker-sensitive went to the community and said, what is it that you want the church to do for you? Could you just fill in this little form for me? Okay, yeah, we want the church to, I don't know, create, create a Bible on tap, then I'll go. And so they did it. Well, you know, stop preaching Romans chapter 1. I don't want to hear that stuff. You know, and I want to be encouraged, like a TED Talk, you know? Like I am when I watch TED Talks. That's what I want. And they went, all right, good. And then they went and they built around everything that the community wanted them to do, right? They don't want to hear hard messages. They want to build for themselves, heap up for themselves teachers that will tickle their ears. And so the seeker-sensitive movement did exactly that. 
and this northwestern suburbs being the epicenter of that entire movement. And so now what's happened is that the church is being led by the world, right? The church is not leading the world, is not leading communities. No, uh, no, the church is being led, and this is what happened. You see, the Lord is not my shepherd if the world is leading me. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. The Lord is not my shepherd if I'm given to the world's desires for me. So, no more discipline. Forget that stuff. The church disciplines no one. No. The church will be disciplined by everyone. We want this. All right, we'll do it. Stop doing that. Okay, we'll stop doing that. Stop saying those. Okay, I'll stop saying those things. Now the church is being disciplined. The, the sheep, which they aren't, have the rod and the staff, and they are leading the pulpits. And so everything was turned around by that very deceptive, pragmatic way of building big groups. Because that is one way to build groups, do for them what they want. So I know that the Lord is my shepherd when his rod and his staff does not offend me. His correction doesn't offend me, but instead they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's what the psalmist said. I'm comforted by your correction. I'm not angered. Second last, the Lord is your shepherd when you sit at God's table that He prepares for you, no matter how many enemies you have because of it. You see, this is so good. You see, the Lord is your shepherd when you sit at the table that He prepares for you in the presence of your enemies. This table where we eat from, all right, we eat from what He has given us. And there are people who love this truth, okay? And so they all come to the same table who love this truth. And the more you love this truth, you will find the more other people, the more enemies you make. But blessed is the man who, who sits at this table who loves this truth because he prepares this table for us in the presence of all those who are becoming increasingly angry over this table we're eating from. So you know that the Lord is your shepherd when you're sitting at that table that He prepares for you. He's prepared it for you. Here it is. It's in a cannon. <laughs> he prepared it for you. It's closed from beginning to end. And He says, now here it is. Come and eat. And as you do, enemies around you rise up. But you know, I'm, I'm being led by the shepherd because in their presence, I'm eating from this table. Finally, you know the Lord is your shepherd when you are eager to return and remain in the house of the Lord forever. And I, surely blessed, surely mercy and goodness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will return and remain in the house of the Lord forever. I will return and remain in the house of the Lord forever. I tell you now, if the Lord is your shepherd, you love the body of Christ. If the Lord is your shepherd, you love the body of Christ, you love the people of God, you want to be with them, you want to serve them, because that's how we serve God. The Lord is my shepherd, and when He is my shepherd, only then will I be able to find the time in my life where I can truthfully exclaim, my cup runneth over. Father, today we come before you and we thank you for your word. I pray, Father God, that our minds can wrap around scriptural truths and that we can, that, that we can find nutrition from your word, Father, as we put our roots deep down into your truth so that we can stand firm like trees planted next to rivers of living water, and we will bear much fruit, and we too will one day be able to exclaim, my cup runneth over. My cup runneth over. Every morning your, your mercies are new, but they're beyond what I even needed. Your grace is so sufficient and abundant. Your goodness, Father, overflows that others can come and find even from this very cup that's overflowing. 
Lord, I pray that this is a reality for every one of us, that we will stop looking at our, our, our situations in life and our circumstances and our hardships and how we have been rejected and how we are alone like a shepherd and how we are poor and how our brothers hate us and how they lie about us and, and how we are living in toxic environments and how my boss doesn't like me and, and, oh God, how my cup cannot overflow until I find a new environment. And, oh God, they want my life. They want to discredit me. Oh God, they want to assassinate my character. Oh God, they, my cup cannot overflow until you remove those people from my life. And oh God, they hunting me down like they hunted David. And oh God, my family is broken. Oh God, my children, my cup is empty because just look at my family. Lord, let us teach us to look away from that and say, my cup doesn't overflow because of my circumstances. No, my cup overflows because you are my shepherd. You're my shepherd because I am your sheep. I hear your voice and I follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.